You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 282, Lafayette in Virginia. Now, we last left Virginia in episode 278, when British General Benedict Arnold sailed from New York to the Chesapeake and then sailed up the James River for a raid on Richmond. After Arnold's raid, he turned to his primary mission, which was to establish a defensible naval port at Portsmouth. Arnold's efforts to build up the defenses there seemed to drag on for several months. Arnold seemed more interested in scouring the countryside to scatter any concentrations of militia and pillage the countryside for any prizes. Arnold's January raid on Richmond had greatly raised Patriot concerns about being able to protect the state. Theoretically, Governor Thomas Jefferson had over 50,000 Virginia militia to call up for the defense of the state. In reality, almost none of the militia could turn out in time to stop the raid, and even given time after the raid, it seemed unlikely that Virginia could raise a credible force to confront the British Army at Portsmouth. When Arnold struck, Continental General Baron von Steuben had been in Virginia attempting to raise more soldiers to send to Nathaniel Greene's army in North Carolina. Steuben had only been able to raise a few hundred soldiers in Virginia, which he had sent to Greene. The Prussian officer managed to collect some militia to lead against Arnold's raid on Richmond, but by the time Arnold had left Richmond, Steuben had only been able to raise a handful of militia, and many of those were unarmed. Some had to be sent home because they had no extra clothes. Their officers instructed them to gather some clothing in return, but most of the men who went home did not bother to return. Steuben had seen militia in New Jersey turn out within days to check British advances in that state. His experience in Virginia and the failure of the militia to turn out to check Arnold's raid led him to believe that the Virginia militia was simply lacking the basic organization and training that other state militias had. Steuben was beyond frustrated with Governor Jefferson and the state government. One of Steuben's first efforts was to reinforce Hood's Point on the James River to prevent another British raid on Richmond. He couldn't even get anyone to dig trenches for the defense of the point. Governor Jefferson said that militia could only be called out to fight, not for fatigue duty. Digging ditches was work for slaves. But he couldn't use slaves to dig the ditches because the state had no money to pay their masters for the work. Steuben also had another continental brigadier in the state, General Peter Muhlenberg, a minister who was raised in Pennsylvania but moved to Virginia before the war. He had lived on the Virginia frontier. In 1776, Muhlenberg had given a homily to his parish from Ecclesiastes in the Bible about there being different times for different purposes under heaven. He preached that there was a time to preach and a time to fight. Then he took off his minister's robes 
to reveal to his parishioners the military uniform that he had on underneath it. From the pulpit, he raised a regiment and marched off to war. By 1781, Uhlenberg was an experienced officer who had fought at Brandywine, Germantown, and Monmouth. As a member of Virginia's German-speaking community, he happened to be a really good match with Steuben, who still really didn't understand English. When Arnold struck, Muhlenberg was home on leave, at his home on the Virginia frontier, celebrating Christmas with his family. It took several days for word of the British attack to reach him, but he immediately left home and attempted to recruit militia for defense of the state. While General von Steuben attempted to raise more men and supplies from Richmond, he deployed Muhlenberg to take command of the forces around Portsmouth, trying to keep the British in check. In February, as General Greene's Continentals and Cornwallis's regulars were marching northward toward the Dan River in southern Virginia, Governor Jefferson called on Steuben to raise 3,000 militia to move southward. However, the state did not have enough arms for them, and many of the men didn't have their own muskets. Steuben ordered Muhlenberg's more capable frontier militia to move to the south and replace them in Portsmouth with the relatively ineffective and often unarmed local militia. About this same time, word arrived that a French fleet was approaching the Chesapeake. Steuben changed plans and ordered Muhlenberg to prepare for a coordinated attack on Portsmouth. Soon, though, details that the French fleet consisted of one ship of the line and two smaller frigates and no soldiers. The militia had turned out, but some were unarmed, almost none had bayonets, and the units had almost no artillery. Undeterred, Steuben asked the French naval commander to fire on the British defenses. But putting wooden ships against entrenched artillery on land was a recipe for disaster. The French commander refused and just sailed away. Once again, Steuben turned to the growing possibility of the war crossing the North Carolina border into southern Virginia. As I've mentioned before, the Americans had targeted the traitor Arnold for capture and execution. Governor Thomas Jefferson proposed offering a 5,000 guinea reward for the successful capture of Arnold. That would be over a million dollars in today's money. Jefferson had also tasked General Muhlenberg with putting together a special task force of soldiers to kidnap Arnold. Jefferson suggested that Muhlenberg raise a task force of backwoodsmen from the frontier to plan and execute an operation to capture Arnold. If they brought him back alive, the unit could share the 5,000 guinea reward. Muhlenberg did collect a force for the task, but they never got close to a capture. Arnold was well aware of the price on his head. He kept a guard around himself at all times. He rarely ventured outside British lines, and then only when commanding a large force of soldiers. He also carried with him two loaded pistols at all times, determining that if the Americans did take him, it would not be alive. When the kidnap plans came to nothing, Jefferson tried to plan something else. He met with a Virginia Navy captain named Beasley Edgar Joel. Captain Joel had a relatively, shall we say, colorful history. He had deserted from the British Army and spent some time in Washington's camp in New Jersey. There, he provided some bad intelligence to the Continentals. Washington suspected that he might be a British spy, but he didn't really have any proof of that. So he just ordered Joel to go away and stay clear of the Army. Joel headed down to Virginia, where he offered his services. 
Joel suggested to Jefferson that they put together a fire ship. They would fill the ship with explosives. When Arnold headed out on a ship again, they would sail the ship down toward Arnold, set it on fire, and blow up both ships, hopefully killing Arnold. The plan's execution began with having to find a ship that could be used for this purpose. Joel located a sunken ship that he could raise and make minimally seaworthy for the project. It took a crew about a week to raise the ship and get it in condition enough for the job. However, when they got the ship to the shipyard for some more repairs, the plan came to a halt. Militia General Thomas Nelson told Joel that the Virginia Navy desperately wanted the ship he had raised for other purposes. They could refit the ship and use it again for something other than just blowing it up. Nelson also wrote to Jefferson that it was almost certain that his plot would fail anyway, since the British had already become aware of their plans. So Jefferson wrote to Joel calling off the plan. Instead, he gave Joel a commission on another ship with the purpose of capturing escaped slaves who were trying to make their way to the British. The plan fizzled, and General Nelson would go on to replace Jefferson in the next election, based in part on Jefferson's failure to defend the state properly. Now, General Washington, of course, wanted to capture Arnold as well, but he had problems of his own. Remember that while Arnold was raiding Richmond, Washington was busy putting down mutinies at the Pennsylvania and New Jersey lines. He had also hoped to focus on attacking the British in New York in the spring, but still lacked the men and resources to do so. About this same time, Washington saw the loss of his most valued aides. Colonel John Lawrence had been sent to France in hopes of securing men and money for a summer campaign. Colonel Alexander Hamilton had been requesting a combat role for some time. He was sick of being behind a desk as a glorified secretary. Washington, though, refused to let him go. The incident that finally broke Washington and Hamilton was a minor one. In mid-February, Washington asked Hamilton to come speak with him. Hamilton said he'd be right there, but first he had to go downstairs and deliver an urgent letter. On the way back, Hamilton ran into Lafayette and got delayed in a conversation, which, according to Hamilton, took less than a minute. When he came back upstairs, Washington snapped at him and said, Colonel Hamilton, you have kept me waiting at the head of these stairs these ten minutes. I must tell you, sir, that you treat me with disrespect. Hamilton snapped back that if Washington felt disrespected, they should part. An hour later, Washington tried to smooth over the incident by sending another aide to speak with Hamilton, but Hamilton was done and considered the relationship over. This was really a minor incident that should have meant nothing. Under most circumstances, both men would have forgotten it, but I like the comparison another historian made when he compared it to a couple with lots of other issues finally getting divorced over a pile of dirty dishes. The incident itself may have been minor, but it was a spark in a relationship that was already about to explode. So, despite an army in mutiny, a Congress that was providing nothing, his own personal staff dissolving, and a southern army fleeing the Carolinas, Washington still needed to focus on the British army under the hated traitor Benedict Arnold, who was invading his home state. A few days following his break with Hamilton, Washington ordered General Lafayette to take command of a division of Continentals and move south to confront Arnold in Virginia. His primary mission was to catch and hang Arnold. When Lafayette arrived in Yorktown, he was the senior officer in command. Although Steuben was 27 years older than Lafayette, 
Steuben's commission as a major general was issued about a year after Lafayette's. So while Lafayette should have taken command, the younger officer wisely left Steuben in command to continue the fight with Jefferson over men and supplies. Lafayette said he would wait until the arrival of his army, which was still in Maryland. Washington had given Lafayette a command of about 1,200 men, with orders to march to Virginia. The march from northern New Jersey was a difficult one. Hoping to keep his mission a secret as long as possible, Lafayette ordered his men to prepare for a short march. After a week, they'd reached Trenton, still with no idea of their ultimate destination. Washington's orders to Lafayette told him to march to the Head of Elk, Maryland, where a French fleet would carry the army down the Chesapeake to Virginia. When Lafayette reached Head of Elk, there were no ships and no word of any arriving. Frustrated, the general appropriated some local boats to ferry his army slowly and in stages down to Annapolis. Lafayette personally took 30 men in a small fishing boat to sail to Yorktown to find out what was going on with his transports. While still aboard his boat, Lafayette wrote to Jefferson asking about the necessary supplies for his army. Jefferson's response was anything but reassuring. He said that he made the requests, but Virginians weren't really used to obeying laws that they didn't like, so the army probably wouldn't be getting what it needed. Jefferson did call the legislature into an emergency session to raise funds for the army trying to defend Virginia, and also to punish militiamen who didn't show up for duty or who deserted shortly after showing up. The legislature rejected both proposals. Instead, they just began investigations that led to the firing of Virginia's war commissioner. When Patrick Henry and others called for a special legion to be raised in defense of the state, the legislature wasted days arguing about the uniform designs and the use of a band to lead the legion. Sure, the legislature wanted to expel the enemy from the state, but if it meant raising taxes, well, that might be a bit too much. Instead, the legislature blamed other states for failing to come to their aid in their time of need. After three weeks in session, they had accomplished almost nothing, and the delegates left Richmond again and would not meet again for another two months. Things got worse in Virginia over the next few weeks. Several communities on the western frontier protested efforts to draft them into the Continental Army and to pay taxes for the defense of the state. These communities argued that they should not be forced to pay for the defense of the rich Tidewater regions. Similarly, residents of the Eastern Shore also resisted efforts to draft them. They would not leave their homes when the British were threatening them. Many of the protesters violently defended efforts to enforce the draft and tax laws. Some of them even began drinking toasts to the king and damning Congress. Some militia who did turn out for their mandated 90 days stacked arms and went home on day 91, regardless of the continuing threat. Jefferson really had no choice but to allow this, otherwise these regions might turn out as loyalist regiments in support of the king. While all this was happening, Lafayette was still trying to move his Continentals to the south. After a transport ship left Baltimore, a British privateer forced it to turn back. And even if Lafayette could get his army to Virginia, there was no food or supplies for his army there. A frustrated Lafayette tried to remain patient as he spent weeks trying to get his army just into the state. Now, even if he could get the army into Virginia, in order for any attack on Portsmouth to be successful, 
the Americans needed to control the waters around it. Otherwise, the British defenders could simply sail away. Lafayette received word that a French fleet would arrive shortly with ships of the line and French soldiers from Newport to assist in the attack on Portsmouth. In late March, a fleet arrived on the horizon flying the flag of France. The Patriots celebrated and sent out a Virginia naval officer on a small launch to greet their allies. As the officer came aboard the flagship, he discovered that it was in fact a British fleet flying the French flag as a ruse, and he became a prisoner of war. Weeks earlier, Washington had traveled to Newport to convince General Rochambeau and Admiral Touche to deploy French forces to Virginia as part of this operation. The French were reluctant to do so, since Britain had a larger fleet at New York. But after a storm wrecked part of the British fleet, the French agreed to deploy a fleet of seven ships of the line, one frigate, and 1,200 soldiers to sail down to Portsmouth. The fleet left Newport on March 8th, with Admiral Touche in command. The British in New York learned of the departure two days later, and the British commander, Admiral Marriott Arbuthnot, left New York with eight ships of the line to intercept the French fleet. With faster ships, the British arrived in Portsmouth ahead of the French. The two fleets spotted each other shortly after dawn on March 16th, a little more than 40 miles off the coast of Cape Henry. The two commanders ordered their fleets into lines of battle and engaged with the enemy. The two fleets were pretty evenly matched, although the British had a slight advantage in the number of guns. Over the next few hours, the navies maneuvered and fired on each other from close range. Both fleets took heavy damage. Three British ships were almost out of commission due to the loss of their sails and rigging. Two French ships were also nearly inoperable from damage. The British suffered over 100 casualties, while the French suffered nearly 200. Eventually, Touche ordered the French fleet to sail away to the east to regroup while the British fleet sailed into the Chesapeake Bay. The following morning, Touche decided that his fleet was too badly damaged to resume the fight, and instead he ordered the fleet to sail back to Newport for repairs. The battle left the British fleet in control of the bay. The American militia had to pull back to avoid the risk of being captured. After learning of the retreat of the French Navy, and with it the loss of the French soldiers that he needed as reinforcements, Lafayette gave up on his plans in Virginia and began to move his army back north to rejoin General Washington in New Jersey. About two weeks after the British Navy defeated the French, another British fleet arrived, mostly transporting an army of 2,200 soldiers under the command of General William Phillips. The new British army, when combined with Arnold's force, gave a total strength of over 3,500 officers and men. General Phillips was an experienced officer. He had most recently served in the Saratoga campaign, where his then-enemy, Benedict Arnold, had defeated him and made him a prisoner of war. Phillips then spent several years in Virginia as a prisoner, often dining at Monticello with Governor Thomas Jefferson. After having been exchanged for General Benjamin Lincoln, whom the British had captured at Charleston, General Phillips was able to return to command. With his arrival in Portsmouth, Phillips now had his former enemy commander, Benedict Arnold, as a subordinate and faced his former dining companion, Thomas Jefferson, as an enemy. Phillips's army, combined with Arnold's, was now larger than the army under Cornwallis in North Carolina. 
As I said, this new commander was highly experienced and well-respected. Lafayette prepared to return to New Jersey with his Continental Army, but he received orders to turn around and go back to Virginia. Cornwallis was expected to link up with Phillips in Virginia, and this new massive army was poised to overrun the state. Now, initially, Lafayette had been upset that he had been deployed to Virginia in the first place, which he thought was going to be a sideshow, while the war under Washington really got going around New York. Now, he was commanding a critical defense of the largest state in the Union against the largest British army that had been in the field in several years. Virginia had gone from being a military distraction for both armies to the location of a major campaign of the war perhaps one that would become decisive to the war itself. Next week, General Phillips launches an attack on Petersburg, Virginia. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, TJ Walker, and Joe Kelsey. I really do appreciate everyone who can support this show, either through ongoing support on Patreon or through one-time donations via PayPal or Venmo. I've sent out some invitations this week on my mailing list to discuss a new experiment. I've been working with the American Revolution Roundtable to create a virtual roundtable. This week I'm going to hold an introductory meeting on Zoom to discuss how we should proceed with this. My idea is that I want this to be an interactive experience, with input from everybody who's participating. My initial thought is to do a chronological review of the American Revolution over a series of online meetings. I'm already doing this on the podcast, but this will differ in that, well, first of all, I won't go into as much detail on everything, and secondly, it's going to be interactive. Everybody can discuss whatever the topic is for the night. We can all ask questions of each other and hopefully have a lively and interesting discussion. One of the limitations of having a roundtable is that some people who aren't already experts in the American Revolution might feel intimidating about diving into discussions with others who are. 
Now, at least to start, I want this to be really an overview of the war. It'll give everyone an opportunity to understand more about the revolution. And of course, if you listen to the podcast, you already know most of what I have to say, so you'll certainly have a head start. But I really want this to be a discussion open to anyone, and if you just want to sit there and listen, that's fine too. As I said, I want to have a discussion topic for each meeting. Uh, I would present some information, then start a discussion with the group. If this sounds interesting to you, please sign up for my mailing list on MailChimp. You can find a sign-up form on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. And it's going to be through this mailing list that I'm going to announce the Zoom meetings. As I said, the first meeting should be a discussion about how we should move forward with this. Certain questions I have, like should we have guest speakers? Should there be a more extensive presentation before having the discussion? What topics should we cover? We're going to discuss all this at the first meeting, so if you have any thoughts on that, please, please join us. I'd really be interested in hearing what people have to say. And if you're not already on the mailing list, you can always email me for the Zoom link. My other big announcement this week is that I'm probably going to be joining Airwave Media Network. This will hopefully allow me to grow the podcast. Hopefully you won't experience any major changes. It should still come out on the same feed it's always come out on. But the change will involve me changing my hosting service, and that may cause some technical problems with the distribution. If you have any problems, please, please let me know. So in this week's episode, we see the forces gathering in Virginia for what will finally result in the showdown at Yorktown later in 1781. Now, it may be confusing to some folks that the British are at this point in Portsmouth and the Americans are holding Yorktown. And this is in the spring of 1781. When Cornwallis arrives later, he will move the British forces from Portsmouth to Yorktown, which he thinks is more defensible. I will cover that, of course, in a future episode. The fight for Virginia really developed almost by accident. The British had sent Benedict Arnold there primarily to distract Virginians from supporting the fight in the Carolinas. Lafayette only went there because George Washington wanted to see Arnold hanging from a gallows. It was only after Arnold showed just how terrible Virginia defenses were that the British took a greater interest and sent General Phillips with more soldiers. My view of Thomas Jefferson during this time is pretty critical. Jefferson was dealing with a legislator and a population that did not want to put up much of a fight. The fact that Virginians would not even raise taxes to defend themselves during an actual invasion of their state was rather jaw-dropping to me. As the state's leader, it really should have been Jefferson who rallied the state during this most difficult time. The fact that he could not says something about his leadership and is almost certainly why he lost the next election. I really feel for General von Steuben, who was not a particularly good combat commander. He was a great drill master and wrote a wonderful training manual, but he was not a field leader. He couldn't really inspire troops, and he also wasn't a political leader who could encourage men to join the ranks. My book recommendation this week is a biography entitled General von Steuben by John Macaulay Palmer. The bulk of this book focuses on von Steuben's service in America. I found it to be a really interesting book. I think you will, too. It is an older book, first published in 1937. The author, Palmer, is actually an American general himself. He fought in the Spanish-American War and World War I. 
he wrote this book after retiring from the Army. This book came out in the 1930s. But just before Pearl Harbor, he actually rejoined the Army to be on the staff of General George C. Marshall. Palmer was in his 70s at the time, and he became the oldest soldier to serve in World War II. I mention that mostly because it emphasizes that this book is written by a military officer, and it is focused on the military history of von Steuben's life. The book itself is about 400 pages, not counting notes and index, which are not terribly extensive, and there is a copy of the book on archive.org for borrow only. My online recommendation is a biography of the other American general that I mentioned in today's episode. The book is called The Life of Major General Peter Muhlenberg of the Revolutionary Army by Henry A. Muhlenberg. The author is a nephew of the general. The Muhlenbergs were a political dynasty in Pennsylvania for decades in the early United States. Peter went on to become a congressman from Virginia himself. His brother Frederick became the first Speaker of the House. Muhlenberg College is named after their father. The author of this book, Henry Muhlenberg, also served in Congress, as were several other members of the family. The book itself takes a close look at General Muhlenberg's military career. I think it's an interesting read. The book is an old one, first published in 1849, but there is, of course, a copy on archive.org if you want to take a look. As always, I've included links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, did the British object to shooting officers during the Revolutionary War? Well, in battle, people get shot. That's nothing new. But part of 18th century warfare involved officers standing prominently with a lack of concern toward being shot. This was a pretty safe stance since muskets were too inaccurate to target an individual. Soldiers did not shoot at an individual. They simply pointed their muskets in the general direction of the enemy and pulled the trigger. In the American Revolution, however, many Americans used hunting rifles. Rifles, as I've said before, were not commonly used in warfare because of the time it took to reload them and the limited number of times they could be fired between cleanings. Their use, however, gave the Americans an advantage in being able to target officers. This was a big problem for the British officers, since they were critical to leading the enlisted men. Many British officers were in fact upset about being targeted, and considered it a violation of decent standards. Many of them refused to engage in targeted killings through the use of rifles, and that's what they considered it, a targeted killing. There's a famous story of Major Ferguson having an opportunity to kill an American officer at Brandywine, and refusing to take the shot because he considered it dishonorable. The American use of rifles is one of many reasons why the British did not consider the colonial officers to be gentlemen. Now that said, while they were critical of the practice, I don't know of any formal objection being made or of ill-treatment of captured riflemen because of their role. Later in the war, British and Hessians used some rifle units as well, and they also targeted officers. The strategy was just too effective not to use. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.